Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Inflation is dropping. President Biden and Xi Jinping have met to reduce tensions between the two countries. Babcock and BAE reported earnings. Boeing fires its chief strategy officer and eliminates his job. The Dubai Air Show wraps up as U.S. air travel is expected to hit a record this Thanksgiving. And General Atomics uh, makes some history by landing its new Mojave short takeoff and landing aircraft uh, aboard the HMS Prince of Wales, becoming the largest ever uncrewed aircraft to take off and land from a British aircraft carrier. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are two of our team, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners is unable to join us because of family travel. Guys, uh, welcome back to the program. It wouldn't be Sunday without you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Margo. Yep. Happy, mysteriously sunny Sunday here in uh, Washington. Uh, Yes, exactly. But it is the finest time of the year in Washington. Not too hot, not too uh, cold. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off and you'll be doing double duty on uh, Europe as well, unfortunately, because Sash can't join us. Uh, Inflation dropping. Uh, Congress uh, struck a deal, right? So we don't have to worry about a government shutdown for a while. And and she and Biden have met to reduce tensions. How did the street absorb all this and what did it mean for the aerospace and defense group? Yeah, I think really the the biggest news this week were uh, for the broader markets were uh, one, the uh, the APEC meeting uh, out in, on the West Coast, and then two, uh, the CPI print. Uh, CPI came in at about 4%, I think exactly 4%. Uh, and that was a, a bit lighter than uh, maybe what was expected. And the market applauded that because it sort of suggests that, you know, the Fed is, what the Fed is doing is working. Um, I think it would be too early to say, you know, it's yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have a soft landing, so on and so forth. But it does suggest that yeah, things are going the right way. Uh, and on the heels of that, you know, the S&P was up uh, 2.3% for the week, which is a nice move. Um, interest rates for the 10-year tended to trickle down a little bit more. Uh, the 10-year yield is running about 4.3%. Um, and not that long ago, if you remember, it was just below 5%. So that's a big move. I mean, a 50 basis point move on on the 10 years is a big move to, to have that happen like intra-month. Um, and, and then, you know, if you look at you know, energy prices, they've been holding relatively steady. Uh, Brent's been hanging around 80. This week it was 81. Uh, WTI at 76 per barrel. And then if you look at the stocks in the group, uh, it was maybe skewed a little bit more towards zero, but not exactly. Uh, Boeing was up um, just under 2%. Most of the defense stocks were flat or a bit down. Uh, General Dynamics was down maybe maybe half a percent. Northrop was flat. Spirit Aerosystems was flat. Uh, probably the, the, the biggest winner on the week was Embraer. It was up almost 5%. They hosted an, an investor meeting in New York. And then uh, DRS's shares were down almost 8%, but that was on the heels of a, a stock offering by uh, by Leonardo, who is the majority shareholder. So that's to be expected. Um, really no big deal there. Uh, in Europe, um, a, a little bit of a different story, but but not too much. If you look at the uh, the Euro stocks, uh, 50, um, it was up uh, just under three and a half percent. So, uh, you know, that that's a you know, strong move uh, broadly across European markets. And then, and then if you look at how the, the stocks traded, aerospace was was clearly, the commercial side was clearly stronger than the defense side. Uh, just to give you an indicator there, Airbus was up almost 3%, and MTU was up almost 2.5%. And then if you, know, you know, if you want to use BAE, 
uh, as a bellwether. Uh, it was down maybe uh, a little over 4%. Uh, Babcock was down about 3%. Uh, Leonardo was down about a, a percent and a half. So you definitely saw some skewing there towards the commercial aerospace side. Uh, and what did we see uh, in uh, Europe? Obviously, some important companies reporting Babcock, BAE uh, systems. Give us kind of your sense on performance and, and how, you know, U.S. news may or may not have, uh, have affected that. Yeah, I think, you know, that the, the movement, you know, BAE being down uh, a bit and uh, Babcock, too, just sort of suggesting maybe expectations were a little bit ahead of where, where numbers printed. Uh, that's you know, we've seen that across both sides of the Atlantic and then investors get a little bit ahead of where things can actually pan out for defense companies because it just takes time for things to kind of flow through defense companies. Uh, and, and, you know, that being said, I don't think there was a too much of a read across really from, um, you know, the, the U S to, to Europe, maybe, maybe a little bit on BAE because they have such a big U S business, but, you know, having, you know, the, the, an agreement so that we're not worrying about a shutdown and into, you know, year end and so on and so forth. But, but just, you know, as you know, uh, we're going to have to be to deal with all this stuff again in January. Right. So it just looks like, you know, we're kind of on the same course that we're typically on where you get, you know, continuing resolution, continuing resolution, continuing resolution, continuing resolution. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen for the full year and we get to some sort of agreement, but, but, but that's where we are. And I guess having a continuing resolution is better than being shut down. Uh, and um, any any impact, uh, just uh, very quickly, also, AUKUS, uh, there was some news flow, residual news flow uh, uh, from uh, the Naval Submarine League's uh, annual conference where there was a lot of discussion about AUKUS, uh, very important, obviously, collaborative uh, effort. And, you know, basically what the schedule would, would be, right? Um, uh, you know, Australia would get uh, block four, uh, so-called block four ships that don't have the Virginia payload module, uh, get a couple of older submarines, bring them into service, and then potentially start acquiring, you know, block sevens, which are going to be, you know, new build block fours, right, that don't have the payload module or a little bit um, smaller. HII also uh, had a big announcement, you know, bolstering its operations uh, and investment in Australia, where the company actually has a has a presence. Can you give us sort of a sense on, you know, what that dynamic uh, looks like, you know, because obviously HII is going to be a key player in this because it's a key player in the United States on the Virginia program, uh, but also going to be, you know, integral in whatever happens down in Australia, given its operations there. Yeah, I mean, on, on the U.S. names, we didn't see, um, you know, a, a heck of a lot of, you know, move on that. I mean, I think when you think it, about the U.S. companies that have exposure to, to AUKUS, Huntington Ingalls is one, um, General Dynamics is one, and a name we don't talk about a lot, a lot uh, BWX Technologies is, right? I mean, BWX is probably the most pure play on that, right, because they make the power plants. Um, and I think that's broadly recognized. I think at this point in the investment community, they look at AUKUS maybe from a much higher level like that, you know, broadly it's good, but it's still kind of too early to really dial in how much impact it's going to have when. So, um, I mean, having some more detail around when things are going to happen is always helpful, but I don't think the investment community was terribly dialed into it, at least not this week. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, Perth, uh, you know, a lot of the defense contractors and HII and others are looking at Perth uh, as a major jobs uh, hub uh, as they are looking to build out kind of all the capabilities Australia needs as a country that's a non-nuclear nation that has to build all of these uh, capabilities, right? Because the boats 
are like 30% of the cost, right? Compared with uh, the infrastructure and the like that goes, uh, that goes with it. Uh, we wish them well on it because obviously it's a very important program uh, for uh, uh, all three nations. Uh, and for those who don't know, right, the future uh, boats, um, you know, sort of post-Virginia that the Australians used to sort of build their program looks like it's going to be a collaborative design venture uh, with the United Kingdom as it looks to its next generation of attack submarines. Uh, Richard, uh, we uh, have been tra uh, tracking uh, the trans-Pacific relationship between uh, the United States and China and how it's gotten rockier and rockier, especially from a trade standpoint. President Biden and Xi Jinping spent four hours uh, together at the negotiating table, reestablish military to military links. Uh, she uh, has said for the latest time that he's going to stop the flow of precursor uh, chemicals that become uh, fentanyl, which is a scourge in the United States and increasingly a scourge in Europe. Uh, and the Chinese leader also met with American chief executives. The message being, you know, while we disagree, we can still we can still do trade. Um, even as that was all happening, right, Chinese uh, ships were using their sonars to harass Australian divers. Uh, give us your sense on where we are on decoupling and whether or not this changes any vector whatsoever that we were on. Well, it was a stabilization measure. The whole week was about uh, putting a floor under the relationship rather than accelerating or improving for much of anything. You know, I mean, given the deterioration in relations, the increased, uh, well, military activities by the Chinese uh, Navy in the South China Sea, uh, as you say, and whatever else, it was a welcome. You know, the deterioration of direct military and military government to government contacts, it was welcome. Uh, having said that, there were people expecting, uh, and perhaps I fell into this trap too, some kind of actual commercial progress between China and the U.S. That was misplaced um, on my part and on others' part. It was clearly, just as I said, an effort to build a floor into things and make sure that, well, make sure there are measures taken to not have a war. Not a whole lot more than that. Maybe the fentanyl thing, you know, a little bit of progress there. But we're a long way from the restoration of everything from you know, foreign direct investment, which at this point has turned negative. It's no longer collapsed. It's outright negative uh, or anything like that. The dinner was sort of interesting. You know, basically a bunch of executives paid $40,000 to show up and, you know, be in the same room as President Xi. Um, Boeing sent Stan Deal, CEO of the commercial unit, rather than Dave Calhoun. That's probably for the best, considering that, you know, Boeing is half defense contractor and half commercial unit. So sending that to the commercial unit makes some sense. Um, expecting anything at this stage is premature. That's the good news. Like, don't be disappointed. The bad news is, even when we do start seeing, if we do start seeing more commercial contracts and, you know, measures taken to uh, uh, encourage um, Western investment and Chinese investment. It, it doesn't look like, first of all, it doesn't look like we're heading in that direction. The Chinese continue to impose arbitrary rules relating to governance and cybersecurity and all this other stuff, very arbitrary rules, um, and have provided no guarantees whatsoever about concerns about intellectual property protection or the rights of business executives to not be arrested, wind up like the two Michaels from Canada. Uh, and then worst of all, there's a real feeling that, you know, we're completely stuck. We're not willing to relent. The U.S. isn't willing to relent on semiconductors and photovoltaic and or I should say lith photolithographic machines needed to create semiconductors. And therefore, well, very simply, the PRC is going to continue to hold 
the jetliner part of uh, the relationship, the trade relationship hostage until that's resolved and it won't be resolved. So I don't see how this gets better anytime soon. Uh, and that's right. And David Calhoun, uh, Boeing's uh, chief executive, was not at that dinner with she, right? It, it had been reported that he was there, but he actually apparently wasn't there. Is that correct? He wasn't there. Is that correct? Yes. And but that, you know, mixed mixed feelings about that, because, yes, it was a CEO you know, level dinner with people like Ray Dalio, you know, folks like that, really top echelon. On the other hand, you know, Calhoun wears two hats. One is head of defense and the other is head of, you know, commercial, or I should say Boeing is two hats. So sending, sending just the guy, Stan Deal, who's in charge of commercial, possibly was uh, diplomatic. Having said that, yeah, there is a certain, hey, why isn't the CEO there feeling? Um, just a quick word from our sponsors before we continue. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, uh, Ron, do you want to add anything uh, to the China discussion before we go uh, to our takeaways from uh, the uh, uh, Dubai Air Show? Yeah, maybe just quickly. I, I think the investment community, like Richard highlighted, had some expectations that uh, post this, you would maybe see some orders from China for uh, 737s or otherwise, uh, some Boeing orders. And um, that, you know, honestly, that wasn't our sense, right? I mean, I think Boeing had been pretty clear, the investment community um, in recent weeks, that we might start to see some of the 85 airplanes that are in Boeing's inventory that China largely owns at this point and they're largely paid for through pre-delivery payments, that those airplanes would start to get delivered maybe before year end. Um, and, and that still could happen. But um, new fresh orders from China were kind of a whole different story and that, you know, that they weren't expecting to see anything like that anytime soon. Um, and, and that was kind of, you know, I think counter to maybe what the market was thinking. There was some press out there suggesting that we could see some orders on the heels of this, but, um, kind of like what Richard suggested, I mean, that's probably a bigger, you know, geopolitical quid pro quo. Um, and maybe we just haven't seen that yet. So, you know, who knows, maybe that's on the come, but, uh, you know, we're still looking for, uh, maybe some deliveries of some seven, three sevens that are sitting in inventory before year end. Richard, any, uh, you know, uh, give it, give us your uh, sense on, you know, where you, wh when you think deliveries will resume and then bridge that into what you thought the biggest headlines were from the Dubai Air Show. Yeah. I mean, deliveries, I think, well, as, as Ron says, just hostage geopolitical fortunes, it's not like it's needed, you know, Airbus is ramping up uh, the number of jets intake taken in by China has fallen by about 50% over the past few years, not just because of COVID. It happened before COVID. You know, so they're taking maybe about 180, 170 jets per year. They might need to ramp up a bit, but you know, Airbus, if they're smart, they can prioritize that. <laughs> um, so I, I think they can go a couple of years without taking any Boeing jets. Um, that would be unfortunate for Boeing, but not the end of the world, given that Boeing's biggest problem right now is getting the production system ramped up. So it's not the end of the world. It, it's not what that's not what's keeping them from getting to 38 per month. It's, you know, it's their own problems getting to 38 per month, not demand. Um, in terms of Dubai, it was fascinating. You know, there was exactly what we would expect. It, we, we talked about which was a bunch of people taking custody of traffic that is in the hands of other people. Um, you know, Emirates doubled down, uh, you know, more 
triple sevens, um, more A350s, some 787s. Basically, they want to be Emirates, like they want to be, you know, like Emirates, only more so. India, of course, has already laid claim to taking back some of that traffic. Um, you've got the Turks coming in in a big way with an announced order for 350 jets. Okay, that's not, that's basically them wanting to be um, <laughs> Emirates. Uh, Etihad, of course, and most of all, Qatar, also wanting to be what they are. Meanwhile, Ethiopian and Morocco showing up there saying, hey, we also want our traffic back. But there's just not that much traffic go around. So superficially, you know, 650 orders and order announcements for, you know, with a high preponderance of wide bodies. In reality, boy, there's so much double counting going on there. The uh, one thing that was noteworthy is we were expecting an A350-1000 order for Emirates. They pronounced themselves unhappy with the engine situation and instead happier with 777X and its uh, additional engine power. And then again, they always want more engine power. When they were designing the 777X, uh, it was Emirates who said, we want water injection. And Boeing and GE held the line and said, sorry, you can't have water injection. Um, so Which is a very odd thing to ask for in 2023. In this day and age, yeah. It's a kind of marginal, you know, okay, that's a lot of work for just one customer. So as a sort of face-saving compromise, you had Emirates buy a small number of A350-900s. Clearly, the 1000 has issues, which means Rolls-Royce has issues. Uh, but the overall message was, gee, an awful lot of, you know, double counting going on. Ron, um, walk us through your your take on all that uh, and what the problems with the Trent are that are bringing us to this point. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I could speak to the first point for sure. I mean, there, there was, when you look at the order activity by um, maybe market value of aircraft, uh, you know, you know, Boeing did Boeing did quite well. I think if you if you look at um, all the orders at the show, I think it worked out to be on the order of uh, about close to sixty billion of market value. Um, uh, in terms of unit numbers, it was roughly 50-50 wide bodies, narrow bodies. Uh, Airbus did less than that. So when you kind of look at the, the order count, Boeing clearly sort of won the day at, at Dubai. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the uh, the uh, Emirates orders for the the triple seven X. On the Trent, uh, I, I I I can't speak a lot to that because I'm just not as informed on that. So I just don't want to lead anybody down a rabbit hole that I'm not qualified to do. Richard, can you help out with that? Yeah, basically it comes down to a bit more power. Um, you know, the three fifty one thousand, of course, um, is the same engine, same everything as. You know, the 900, which is baseline at 300 seats and, uh, you know, 7,000, 8,000 8, nautical miles. The idea with the 1,000 was, you know, same engine, you know, obviously a, a big, a, a more powerful version of the same engine and 350 seats. So getting into 777-8X territory, um, pretty clear that uh, they, they simply want a more powerful engine, maybe with some reliability guarantees and, you know, the other problem with Rolls-Royce, of course, is that they'd emphasize the closed shop, which, of course, tends to inflate, uh, you know, maintenance costs for engines. And so there might have been a whole package of things going on there. But suffice to say, they wanted 
a more powerful engine that would allow them to do more of their A380 route structure. I mean, basically, Emirates is looking for a future where they use A350-1000s and 777Xs to replace their A380 fleet. Um, and and they'd rather not give it all to Boeing, so they're doing their best to encourage Airbus and Rolls to come up with an alternative that does a lot of that mission. How many more years do you give the A380? Well, they were among the last people to receive this uh, this aircraft in a, in a shall we a, a decision that uh, I would I would regard as uh, unblemished by uh, <laughs> unblemished by uh, business acumen. Uh, so you can take that, and you know they've always maintained that. They don't want to operate aircraft longer than 12 years. That's been right. their mantra. You know, they've they've got a very ambitious fleet goal. They might extend that a bit, but I think it's a it's a fair bet that sometime in the early 2030s, uh, they leave these A380s leave Emirates service. They'll probably discover well before then that the costs of operating what is effectively becoming an orphan fleet are prohibitive, and that might accelerate that to the late 2020s. Um, this was just an ill-advised jet, and Emirates embarked upon an ill-advised fleet strategy. Uh, Indeed. And a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, J.J. Uh, Gertler. Uh, Ron, I want to uh, bring you in uh, to uh, get your take uh, on uh, the decision by Boeing uh, CEO Dave Calhoun, uh, who not only fired uh, Mark Allen, uh, the company's uh, very well-respected, a very well-respected senior executive with the company, uh, who was the company's strategy chief, but also eliminated the job, which has Got a lot of people asking, okay, look, if, if you didn't like Mark Allen and his star in your eyes has been declining, Mark's a you know a professionally understands how these things uh, go, you know, would have would have left the company and he's certainly a desirable property, right? So somebody else would want to hire him. But the strategy job would seem to be pivotally important for any major company, especially a company like Boeing that is in the midst, you know, is facing a lot of strategic crossroads, whether on the commercial aircraft side about when to make a new uh, single body jetliner, whether it's on its long-term sustainment strategy and global services business, which, right, uh, there are implications. And then, of course, on the defense side of the equation where the company faces some, some challenges, this as senior officials, you know, underscore the next generation air dominance aircraft, you know, there's this sense of, well, you know, there'll be an industrial based strategy and, you know, the, the Air Force wouldn't want to give all the work to Lockheed. There's nothing in NCAT that has any industrial base consideration. At the end of the day, if you have an airplane and it delivers, the airplane, the Air Force is going to pick it. But what's what's your sense on how to read this decision and what it really means and, and, the, and the signal it sends, frankly? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we've as you know, um, critiqued Boeing on uh, over the over the years is is strategy. Um, we've highlighted, um, you know, pretty recently, you know, the, the need to continue to develop airplanes and you know throughout there, uh, what we thought could be you know a workable solution to an next narrow body. You know, by no means the solution, but a, a solution, and that you know. You know, a company doesn't necessarily have to be doing it right now, but they do have to send a signal that, yeah, we're working on this and this is something we're seriously thinking about. And, you know, part of what we do is not only, 
um, optimize our current production system, but we think about future production systems and future aircraft. And it seems like to the investment community, they've kind of downplayed that. Um, you know, on one hand, I understand that, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to recover from COVID, recover from uh, everything that happened to the max and kind of get all their ducks in a row. Um, but, you, you know, in, in my humble opinion, you can't do that um, and forego kind of everything else. So one would think having a strong strategy function, kind of no matter what, is an important thing to do. Um, you know, the you know what happened with Mark or anything. I can't speak to that. I mean, I, I just don't know. But um, you, I guess, you wouldn't want to see. You know, from my vantage point, and probably from most investors' vantage points, when you think medium term and longer term. Uh, for the company to have uh, its strategy function uh, somehow diluted or kind of put on a back burner while you're focusing on things that seem super important now, but you know that the day-to-day operations ultimately kind of ramping everything back up that, that can't forego the future. So you know that that's kind of where I fall on it. Richard. You know, I think first and foremost, uh, yeah, <laughs> all these years, whenever um, my colleagues and I, uh, Ron, if I may include you in that, uh, discuss Boeing, the first phrase that comes to mind is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, we didn't think that would be taken literally because that's kind of what just happened. Um, you know, I think it's important to note that the plan now is for strategy to devolve to the individual business units. Which means that, well, that makes no sense. Basically, individual business units make tactical decisions about product development and whatever else. Company-wide strategy, what does that encompass? What are you getting rid of here? Again, it's far more than Mark Allen is a pretty talented guy. It's the concept of company-wide strategy. It's talent generation. It's technology generation. And it's M&A activity that that involves the entire company. Basically, not doing any of those. You know, next time someone tells you from Boeing that ah, we you know have plans to share technology across the domains. No, you don't. <laughs> that was the function of strategy, kind of the idea. Um, and ditto for talent, and ditto for M and A. Um, this is a company without a future. Their future is to rip it apart. You know, sell off the individual units as as they recover, if they recover, certainly commercial will recover as the production ramp continues. Maybe Boeing commercial will be remain co. Um, or there'll be regime change. Someone in will come new, uh, come new and, and say, oh, wow, this company is so much more than the sum of its parts. Let's restore strategy. Let's restore a future. Um, it might be too late by then, but until then, the plan is to run this company for cash and then sell parts of it to the highest bidder and see what's left. I can't think of another explanation for getting rid of the company-wide strategy function on top of everything else that we have witnessed about the management of this company over the past few years. I mean, I would, uh, you know, since this uh, started with a conversation you and I had some time ago about, um, you know, sort of the, the analyzing each of these decisions and how could you achieve arrive at any other conclusion, right? If you don't like the advice Mark Allen is giving you, get rid of Mark Allen and then put somebody in the job that people will go, oh, wow, strategic minded. They're serious about it, as opposed to saying, yeah, we just don't don't need that function. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, former Boeing friends of mine, right? I mean, there was another culling of talent from the company, right? A whole bunch of uh, folks are unfortunately leaving. 
um, a couple of weeks ago or a week before last, I can't even remember now, right, was 50% turnover uh, in at Boeing. I was talking to a very good friend of mine uh, who was basically saying, look, Ted Colbert's doing a terrific job, but the amount of damage that you've got to, he's got to repair, uh, you know, and he wasn't coming at this from lawyering uh, for, for Ted uh, in any way, but it's like, it's, it's hard to imagine the challenges that exist in the company's defense division that just one year at the helm is, is not going to fix. And Ted's a classy guy. You know, he said, Hey, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the future and not talking about the past. Ron, from your standpoint, how's the street looking at all of this, you know, and are we being unnecessarily grim about how we look at this? Right. I mean, some serious questions, you know, you raised them when we were talking about NGAD and sort of the Lockheed approach and what the Boeing approach might be. And your concern about whether or not they, they do have an ability to be able to deliver. I mean, what, 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 what's your sense kind of going forward here? Yeah, I think I think this street is more near term focused. You know, I mean, you know, is just like they like McDonnell Douglas when McDonnell Douglas was making money, even if its future looked grim. Uh, uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, the probably the, the biggest question I get from investors today on Boeing is um, what their cash flow is going to look like in 24 and 25. Um a lot of investors really don't think about, you know, is there a terminal value issue and, and what's it all mean? Um, and it, but it's one of those things, Bago, that's funny, right? I mean, they don't worry about it until they do. Um, and, you know, when, when that flip happens, it's, it's always, it's always hard to say, but at the moment, I think all eyes are on, you know, the, the execution side of the commercial ramp, and I think, I think, I mean, I can't speak for the whole investment community, but I think the investment community just kind of thinks about, you know, a, a future airplane as something that will happen at some point, but we don't have to worry about it today. Um, you know, the defense business doesn't tend to, investors don't tend to really worry about it unless you see big changes in performance, meaning a big gap up that things get better a lot or get worse a lot. But if you're just kind of bumping along where they are, my sense is investors don't really focus on that a lot. Um, and at, at, at this juncture, it's really all like all eyes are on, you know, just the, the ramp up of seven, three and the ramp up of seven, eight to a lesser extent, how triple seven X goes. Um, and then you have to walk out another couple of years for people to really start thinking about, Oh, well, what happens after seven, three, right? I mean, and when it's all said and done, this is probably, I'd say more than probably, like definitely 737's last surge in production. So after this ramp up in 73, what's what's next on the narrow body side? Um, you know, and, and people aren't there yet. I mean, some are, obviously. Some people tend to, some investors tend to be longer term thinkers. But that's typically not even how the market trades, right? So, you know, the market's looking out um, at best 18 months. Um, and you know, it's, it's always this catch 22 and on, on some level, I do feel for managers of, of companies like Boeing or any, any company of that sort where, you know, the market's judging them on, uh, you know, a fiscal year end for many investors is, you know, in October or a calendar year end, a 12 month view where you're making decisions around strategy that can go out over 20, 30 years and, and the aperture of the market and the aperture strategy are completely misaligned. Um, and you know, I, I would argue that's probably one of the hardest tasks that um, management of any company 
like Boeing, meaning where you have you know product development cycles and product life cycles that are in decades potentially, um, and you have an investment community that's you know thinking in you know in, in quarters or months or sometimes weeks, right. and and how you you know you, you get that to match. I mean, not to be too much of an engineering nerd, but it's sort of like there's an impedance mismatch between kind of the 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 duration of the business and the duration of investors. Uh, in, in, indeed, Richard. Any uh, last uh, thought on that? Because we're going to uh, wrap up in a minute. Uh, but uh, do you, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, just to reemphasize the point that this isn't about Mark Allen. Uh, you know, he's a good guy. Right. But you know, <laughs> I mean, what's sort of interesting is that the person who did hold strategy uh, before Mark Allen was Chris Raymond, very much still with the company, and he's doing sustainability. In other words, it wouldn't be that hard to say, Chris, you're really good at this. You're a good guy. We want you back in strategy. Because for some reason, we disagreed with what Mark Allen had to say. That's not the case at all. This is a company that said, well, we already tried to give ourselves a lobotomy. Let's double down on that and give ourselves an even bigger <laughs> lobotomy. Ron, I want to uh, get your uh, sense on this. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems uh, says Mojave, uh, short takeoff and landing variant of the Predator, made a successful landing and takeoff from HMS Prince of Wales. It set a record uh, as the largest ever unmanned aircraft to operate from a British uh, aircraft carrier. They practiced uh, for it by putting the ground control station in the back of a truck and driving it down uh, the runway to simulate movement, given that most uh, of those control, most of uh, those uh, control stations are stationary. This one was the first one ever with a seatbelt, which I think is kind of neat. Um, I was among the group who uh, uh, saw the plane uh, when it was revealed by the company a couple of years ago. And the Royal Navy wants to pioneer uh, integrated air wings in the future that have large components of unmanned aircraft like uh, the Mojave uh, that can, can give them intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. This this uh, aircraft can carry all the payloads that the Predator can, which is a considerable number of payloads. Um, and, and these exercises, they were delayed by for one day by weather, but was to better integrate operations between uh, the Royal Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps and the, and the U.S. Navy uh, as well. The Marine Corps is interested in this airplane and is considering uh, doing uh, operating it off of its uh, uh, amphibious assault ships. How important of a development is this and the kind of capability this is? And, and Richard, want to kind of get your uh, sense at all. General Atomic sponsors us. Uh, I know that, but I'm sort of intrigued by this idea of putting this platform at sea and you can do a whole bunch of missions from sea forward in a whole variety of ways, whether it's anti-submarine warfare or surveillance and reconnaissance, as well as precision strike. Well, I mean, I think it's actually pretty pretty important um, from a couple you know, points of view. One, if you think about just the the movement towards unmanned operating with manned, uh, just being the, the whole thing now with NGAD and the, you know CCA is going to. Uh, uh, collaborative combat aircraft and how that's all going to work and this is in in line with that right so it's you know how how will these aircraft operate with f-35s manned versus unmanned and it's based on a platform that's got literally decades of performance and experience so in terms of you know how to use this thing what you can do with it what kind of environment you can put it in and now you can operate it in a you know a short takeoff and landing variant. Who knows? Maybe one day on just a vertical takeoff and landing variant. Um, that I think that's pretty powerful, right? And it it would seem to me the real besides the engineering accomplishment of doing it, 
it's now it's how do you actually use this thing effectively in your order of, of order of battle uh, and what what you know how can you take this the you know the performance that it has and the abilities that it has to um you know, have your you know, military operations that much more effective uh, and, and 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 that would be my guess is that the challenge that lays ahead is you know what's the best way to deploy it and so on and so forth but you know hands down you know it's another um, uh, engineering achievement by the folks at General Atomics, and I know they're your sponsor, but just to stand back and say they've done all kinds of neat things over the years, and this is just another one of them. Richard, yeah. especially your take on sort of what the market looks like uh, for aircraft like this, especially if you can deliver a short takeoff and landing variant that that has a lot of the same capabilities as the baseline aircraft. Yeah, good news and bad news. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the good news is absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the you know weaknesses of the Reaper, Predator, whatever, uh, series has always been the field requirement and the fact that it couldn't be dispersed into smaller, you know, operating conditions and places. This goes a long way towards, you know, creating something that's uh, allows for more of a decentralized ISR capability and maybe even a limited strike capability. So certainly worth doing absolutely a market, obviously regulatory reform, you know, MTCR and whatever else right. is still going to be imperative because otherwise, you know, newcomers like the Turks and Chinese are going to continue to eat into the, the uh, UAV market. Um, now, the downside, um, AEW, really? I mean, this sort of continues the Royal Navy's long tradition of deprioritizing a requirement that really shouldn't be deprioritized. France faced the same, you know, situation and said, ah, screw it, let's actually import something for a change. And they got E2s and then E2Ds, I believe. Um, there were studies to adapt the E2 to the Royal Navy carriers. Um, they never went that way. The last time they needed to do an AEW, they simply went with an EH-101 large helicopter and um, you know, put the crow's nest radar on it and said, okay, now we have an AEW capability. Okay, kind of, sort of, maybe. So here's something that probably has more endurance, certainly has more endurance, eh, probably about the same speeds, maybe just modestly more. Um, less capacity, of course, zero onboard battle management capabilities. Um, and go higher. And it can go higher. That's certainly a good thing, I guess. Although, you know, obviously radars are playing a role in going, sorry, uh, satellites are playing a role in, in right. some of the high altitude stuff, um, as well as land-based assets, uh, especially now that they've got P8s coming. Um, you know, overall, I, I guess it's it's good. I can't help but think this is part of a much longer story of the Royal Navy deprioritizing something that really shouldn't be uh, skimped on. Look, I mean, the reality is they don't have catapults and arresting gear and you can't put an E2D uh, and operate them off it. The French carriers have catapults, American catapults and arresting gear on them. Uh, and, you know, Britain made the decision to go with a ski jump and thought that a better version of the H3s, right, the bags uh, was right. uh, the way to go. Then we went with a crow's nest uh, solution. There are folks who've said V22s with a bag radar or some form of radar would be a better answer because you can get them higher. Right. Uh, indeed, I'm one of the people who's been a longtime advocate of, of getting a V-22 capability because they need a carrier onboard delivery capability uh, that 101s are not going to be able to do when when it's in the middle of the Pacific somewhere and it needs uh, greater uh, range. Um, so I completely agree with you. I don't think it's a prioritization thing. It's a, I tried to field as much carrier capability as I could for the money um, and I'm getting F-35s and I don't need to worry so much about this. And I'll, you know, and, and I mean, the 
the, the ships were designed in the height of the post-Cold War lull. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, hope uh, you both have a terrific uh, Thanksgiving and already looking forward to getting the whole team back together again next week. Thanks so very much. Uh, thanks, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. And a very special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors uh, for their generous support that makes this program possible uh, each week and every day. We'll see you again tomorrow for our Look Ahead program. Thanks very much. Have a great day. And we'll see you again tomorrow.